are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jeffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jeffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejoffrey.org. So with that, let's turn to Luke chapter 2. And we will read the, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time for her to give birth, uh, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. But Val and we were singing about this morning, this joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made, known to, they, uh, they made known the saying that had been that told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shep- what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen and had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, and we are grateful to be in your house today. God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the joy that it brings, the fun and the excitement surrounding it. Some of us remember our childhood and we, we are so grateful to think about all the blessing that we get to enjoy in this Christmas season. But God, but I pray that today you would help us remember what this season is about. The story that we just read in Luke 2, God, that it would not be just a story, but it would become real to us. The love that Lars just spoke about would not be something of an idea, but something that becomes real to us. That love, 
Jesus, who is love, took on flesh and dwelt among us. God, help us to see that, to recognize the reality of this. Give us a, a reality, a sense, a, a beauty today that we, we sit in awe and we stand just, and we marvel at the beauty of, of the presence of God that is here with us in your spirit. We praise you for it. Thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 2. I don't know, I read it in the ESV. I I grew up memorizing that in the KJV. So every time I read it, I want to say it the same way that I'm remembering it. And it's challenging for me. But it's one of those things that is so nostalgic. It's one of those things that reminds me. As even this morning, I was reading Luke 2 with the kids and walking through that story of the Christmas story. And I hope today, as we look at the angel's song, becomes something real for you. I hope that you see the reality of this beautiful story. So last week, like I said, we were looking at Zachariah's song. Zachariah, Elizabeth, and the story of John the Baptist. Uh, during that time, while I was preaching, um, I sometimes notice certain things that go on, but not all the time. But I did notice there was a time in this message when I was preaching last, it was right towards the beginning, my, someone came over and had to grab my wife and she had to run out to the side. And usually that's a sign for me uh, that my son Judson is acting up in the nursery. So I don't know if you have little kids in the um, nursery or the kids' church or whatever. Um, and so I didn't really think anything of it. It's probably not an unusual thing. And um, he's two and a half. And uh, so I go on preaching. And then afterwards, a few people came up to me and said, hey, did you see your son? After, you know? And I said, no, I didn't. But what happened? And so what happened was my son had a little bit of an accident in the nursery. Uh, he's two and a half trying to learn to potty train. And he had a little bit of a blowout in his diaper. And it went all over his uh, clothes and his shirt and all over the carpet in the toddler church area. Not exactly the most exciting thing. And of course, my wife had to go figure out the situation, trying to clean him up and all. And so she goes over, we didn't have a change of clothes or anything like that. It was all over and it was messy. And so she runs over there, her and Stacy are in the back, trying to figure out, trying to find clothes. And we realized that we had a bathrobe in the car because after church last Sunday, we were going over a friend's house where we were, the kids were going to be able to swim in their hot tub and have a lot of fun. So we had a swimsuit, basically, and, a, and his uh, bathrobe. And so there was a moment after they were cleaning him up and they were helping him and they were trying to find clothes that all my son was wearing walking through the hallways of the church was a bathrobe while munching on veggie sticks. And it was, a, it was a situation that I couldn't get out of my head that I just thought was absolutely hilarious because he didn't think, he didn't have a care in the world. It was just a normal day to him. Uh, Judson was not worried and was probably worried as to why everyone was fretting and running around in such a big deal. Like, what's the big deal, everyone? Uh, Judson walking around the pastor's son like he owns the place, you know? And he's walking through the hallways in nothing but his bathrobe, munching on veggie sticks, just acting like this is a normal day at church. And it got me thinking just the simplicity of that story, the funniness of it, that was just, I couldn't get over because of Judd's personality, just makes me laugh. But it's the contrast of those two things that just stuck out to me. This simple contrast of my son walking around and just, that is not something you would typically do at church. It's not something that you would typically wear to church. Uh, But for him, it was normal. And yet, it was very abnormal. It was a very abnormal Sunday morning. And when I think about the Christmas story, there's something about the contrast of those two things that just don't seem to fit together. 
Certain things that don't seem to mesh. It's not the way it should be. This is not a normal day. This event that has occurred is very unusual. And in like manner, the Christmas story, yes, nostalgic to us. Yes, we know the story. As I said, many of you might even be able to quote parts of Luke chapter 2. You've done the Christmas Eve and the Christmas Day. But if we consider just for a moment the incredible unusual nature of Christmas Day and all that we celebrate, the very contrasting element, particularly of the fact that the Son of God, the Messiah, the heavenly second person of the Trinity, who has been surrounded by angelic beings in heaven, cherubim and seraphim, singing worship to him from the eternity's beginning and before that and forevermore, singing holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. That Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, wrapped in flesh, born of a woman, an infant, as someone said this morning, just this idea that God himself had to be taken care of. He was a baby, he was nursed, he was cared for, he was a helpless infant, wrapped in this way, laying in a animal's feeding trough was it in a cave or a stable or a guest room or the place where the animals are kept outside of a poor home no one is 100% sure but one thing is for certain that he did not come to a mansion or a royal palace or a red carpet that was rolled out for him where midwives were all attending to Mary's needs and everything was cared for and taken care of they came in a rather Almost ordinary way, you could say. Almost so ordinary that it was, the contrast is so strange. It doesn't seem to fit. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The God of the universe would come in this way. It just, there's something awry. There's something amiss. There's something that's, something has happened. This is unusual. This isn't the way a king of kings is supposed to come, right? It's supposed to be something much more extravagant and clear for the whole world to see. But here, Jesus, born in a manger, is born in poverty. There's no room for him. Doesn't seem to be all this help. And yet, this child, wrapped in swaddling clothes, this little infant, Seemingly deserving so much more, yet a a child, yet willing, this God willing to come as a child and condescend to earth from heaven to earth. The power and authority of all the universe to take on flesh. Philippians 2 gives us an insight to this. Philippians, Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, that we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, being held onto, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient, by coming to a manger. But even more than that, it says, becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Crazy. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
And thou bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. In heaven, every knee, and on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This humble, lowly manger, baby Jesus, born in helpless state, yet announced announced, as we sang earlier, angels from the realms of glory, angels we've heard on high, all these angels' songs. We've announced these armies of heavenly hosts. The mighty uh, host of heaven kind of peels back the curtains for us to see. The dark sky is peeled back for us to behold. The highest of heaven come to announce this angelic chorus sings God's praises and identifies Jesus as God sent to man to be their savior. Glory to God in the highest for this. Extraordinary contrast between these angelic heavenly chorus singing the praises and then these lowly, everyday, ordinary shepherds. The contrast between this almighty God and and this very simple, ordinary birth in a manger, lowly you might even say. The Savior from on high has come down to earth to save humanity like you and me. As John 3 reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So today, I want us to consider that belief, that that faith that we have in this person of Jesus who has come to earth to bring heaven to earth, to give us the hope of heaven and uh, this wholeness and this peace that we long for. And what strikes me about the beginning of Luke 1 and Luke 2, which almost, as I've said, becomes so familiar to us that we might miss the contrast and the unusual nature of it. But in Luke 1 and Luke 2, we get after this intertestamental period of silence that we looked at last week, after this time of almost nothing and not hearing from God and no prophet, The Old Testament ends, then the New Testament begins with this explosion of this invasion from heaven to earth. And I'm talking about even before Jesus comes. The invasion of heaven to earth. This angel Gabriel visits Zechariah and Elizabeth, tells them about that they will have a child. His name is John in their old age, though Elizabeth had been barren. This extraordinary miraculous birth of John, who will be named John the Baptist. Angel Gabriel visits Mary. A heavenly messenger Gabriel there visits Mary. Angel visits Joseph in a dream. Uh, Angels speak and sing to the shepherds. This angelic chorus. A star is placed in the sky signaling to the wise men far off in the east to travel to clear, to see the clarity of this sign that they allude to uh, Micah chapter 5. Angel warns Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. And then warns the wise men to avoid Herod. There is an extraordinary clear sign of over and over. Of this heavenly invasion to the affairs of earth. Due to the love and the grace of God for mankind. God invades this domain of darkness you could say. With his kingdom of light. Satan and his armies can do nothing to stop it. Heaven is this dwelling place of God, the realm of the divine, 
holiness and perfection of God in heaven. The holy habitation and dwelling of God. Yet that comes now through Jesus to earth. The domain of God's image bearers. We as human beings here on earth. Once an earth that was united. Now finds itself divided through sin and separation. Now awaiting a new heaven and a new earth. In the end that will be redeemed. This hope that we have that heaven and earth will collide in fullness. One day as Revelation 21 reminds us. That I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And so the story of Christmas, if I may, before we jump into this story of Luke 2, we must see this big picture. And, and one way that I've explained it in the past is this idea of seeing the big picture of the Bible through three earths. Three earths in the sense that at the very beginning God says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And so we see in the very beginning there is this Edenic earth, this Eden, this perfection and this beauty. And then there is the fallen earth, sin-cursed earth that we live on today. And then we see the new earth that we long to see one day in fullness. So you could say heaven and earth were together, heaven and earth have been separated, and then one day heaven and earth will converge again in a new heaven and new earth. And it's in that Edenic earth in the beginning, in the Genesis 1, where we see that God created the world, humanity, and earth, and he called it very good. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. It was good. God literally walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. There was an openness to things. It even says in the book of Job that the angels were there in the beginning, the angels uh, it says when God asks Job in Job 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation and began this earth process? What, where were you when I created the earth? Well, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. It's as if angels were there looking at God's creative process and marveling about his handiwork. And that Edenic earth and beauty and joy and goodness yet through man's sin and our rebellion and our disobedience, the earth and heaven were separated through that rebellion. Genesis 3, 24 reminds us not only angels were there, but angel was put at the opening to the Garden of Eden. After sin, we've taken of the fruit, we've disobeyed God's command. We did not want him as our king. We wanted to be the king. And Genesis three twenty four says, he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This cherubim, an angel guarding the way to life. An angel pronouncing judgment and barring the gate. There is now this separation between that openness and that peace between God. And Genesis 3.15 says that there will be enmity between the two. Yet God has not left us without hope. For he says he will send one who will crush the head of the snake. He will send one to rescue and redeem his people. And so we see that in this fallen earth that begins this inaugurated sense when Jesus comes to, to guarantee the salvation and the redemption of mankind and all of earth. The beginning stages of this comes when heaven and earth are converging through Jesus Christ. The angelic choir reminds us as they say, the heavenly armies announced proclaiming the good news and peace on earth. 
A bridge between those places of that place of heaven and earth. That bridge has been made through Jesus Christ. He becomes our mediator between God and man, between heaven and earth. And this is really good news for you and me. As Revelation then reminds us that that beginning bridge that Jesus has made between God and man will be continued and will one day be in complete in fullness. In Revelation 21, as it reminds us that the new heaven and new earth will be made new, where the city and the holy Jerusalem will descend upon earth and converge. And in Revelation 22, it points us to how an angel pronounces to John, that an angel showed me the river of the water of life. The fruit of that tree will be healing for the nations. There will be light. There will be openness and freedom to the tree of life. There will be a way, one day, where there will be a new heaven, a new earth, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. This is through Jesus Christ and his ability to make that bridge, to make that way. He is the one who has come to save us from our sins, to redeem our lives, our souls, our bodies, and this earth, to be with him in heaven once again. And so that's the big storyline of the Bible. This creative arc that in some ways begins to climax and hit its peak here on Christmas and Easter on top of that pyramid. And those two monumental watershed moments when Jesus comes at Christmas, he dies and rises again on Easter. We see that moment as the the very pinnacle, the center of all of human history. And it's that moment that we look back to and we yet at the same time look forward to his second return, his coming. We know as the the second advent where he will finalize this plan of redemption. And so let's now look at Luke chapter 2 and see as we zoom in, yes, on the time of Christmas and the birth of Jesus and what this actually means in the bigger picture of the Bible. This heavenly birth announcement. The birth announcement that it basic child is born that's basically just there is a child that is born many of us have so many uh, birth announcements or is it a boy or a girl all these kind of gender reveal parties and stuff like that and we think about in some ways almost the simplicity of it that that is yes he is a savior he is a messiah and there's so many details to fill in between but at its base level a baby has been born and that baby will change the world forever And the stark contrast is seen for the heavenly realm comes to deliver this to ordinary society of shepherds on earth. The angels, these messengers. One angel is enough to strike fear into most people's hearts. In fact, in the Bible we often see angels coming to people and they are always immediately struck with fear. And the sky then not only from one angel, as it says, an angel said to them in verse 10 of Luke 2, but then in the next verses, it says, then suddenly with that one angel, an absolute multitude filled the sky. You ever been outside on a nice cool night around here where there isn't very much light pollution, right? When you can literally be out here in the country and look up at the sky and it's a clear, potentially winter when it seems even more crisp, And the stars are just beaming. It is as if this velvet black sky is filled with light. 
Maybe you've seen a fireworks show in the summertime when it's dark and then everyone's waiting and it's quiet. Then all of a sudden there's one firework that goes off. Boom! It celebrates the beginning of the show. And then one firework. And then another firework. But then what happens at the end of that show? There's that finale, right? When the guy just let loose on the computer and he's just... Right? And all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. And then boom, the whole place lights up in such a way where you're almost needing sunglasses because it's so bright and so loud. In some ways, that's how I see this. This one angel visiting, this one angel. In fact, I I saw, um, I looked up a few articles on this. So it talks about how many stars can you actually see at night at one time. One article was talking about how technically you could see anywhere from 10,000 stars at one time with the naked eye. Yet in reality, that's very unlikely due to the fact that being in the northern hemisphere, we, we cannot really see the stars in the southern hemisphere. And so we, if you limit it to the northern hemisphere and some aspects of a limited field of vision and view, that an average night, or you could probably count if you were to take the time. Now, some of you kids might want to try sometime and seek if, to see if you can actually count up to two to 3,000. Somewhere in between there, they said, is a, is a good night. You could potentially, with the naked eye, see anywhere from two to 3,000 stars at one time. And of course, with telescopes and a variety of other technology, you can see a whole host of things. The James Webb, which is sent out in space, which sees galaxies. The telescope sees galaxies even further beyond any field of vision that we've ever had possible due to mankind's limitations. Yet for that aspect to consider that the North Star, you could say, was one star in the sky. This angel that visits the people, uh, the shepherds on a hillside and, and says, you know, A baby has been born in Bethlehem. And then all of a sudden that one angel, though bright and fearful, for these men were literally terrified. I mean, that is quite the terror to produce in a, a, a bunch of men together who are used to living on the, on the go and used to sleeping outside and used to traveling far distances and defending their, shepherd, uh, their sheep and their flocks from wild animals. For those men to immediately be terrified by one angel. And then to imagine the brilliance and the explosion of heaven to earth of that entire night sky being filled with 3,000 angels. Then in one unison voice singing the glory and the glory and the glory of God. Holy, 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 it's as if they are saying. It's as if 2 Kings 6, which reminds us, 2 Kings in the Old Testament, when Elisha had this situation as well, when he's seeing and he's looking out and there are doubts as to what's going on and others do not see what he sees. In Second Kings 6, Elisha prays and says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, his servant that was with him, and he saw and behold, the mountains around were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a beautiful thing. You see, these, these ideas of these angels, they're not, they're not little cupids. Right? On, on, on Valentine's Day, you always see these little floating, half-naked baby, little Cupid things, shooting little bows and arrows with hearts on them, right? Maybe that's our mindset of angels, or it's a wonderful life. You ring a bell and they get their wings, some nonsense, right? This idea that these angels are some kind of cute, cuddly kinds of things. These are terrifying, heavenly hosts. And the shepherds and the presents are in awe. 
And they speak the the beauty and the power and the glory of heaven that is not just reserved for them, but now sent to you in the form of a baby, a little child. And in the form that this great, amazing, heavenly news would be given to these guys. Shepherds? I mean, there's plenty of other kingdoms and kings that should receive this kind of news. No, no. This lower caste of society, these shepherds, hardly the royal envoys to spread this news. These shepherds had been, in fact, in Jewish writing. And at that time, uh, shepherds were often viewed as a lower caste in that they would not often be able to practice the rituals that uh, someone who lived in in a city near a synagogue or the temple would be able to do. They were often unclean in the work that they had to do. They traveled a lot. And so they were not always accepted. In fact, in the law courts, shepherds' testimonies were not accepted. And I find it fascinating that God would speak into the culture of that time and give the greatest news to mankind at that time that Jesus was born and the Messiah was right there, that he would give it to shepherds. And then when he rises from the grave, who were the very first people to reach the tomb, a similar cast of society in their testimony in the culture at that time, the women arrive to the tomb first. Yet God speaks into these shepherds and to these women and gives them this beautiful message of the gospel first before anyone else. It's beautiful. It's God's lowliness. It reminds me of the words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so this is an announcement of heavenly blessing sent to the earth. This announcement of good news for the earth. Tim Chester puts it this way. He says, here is the message. I bring you good news. Literally saying, I am gospeling you. In the ancient world, a gospel was the announcement of a new government. A new king took over a country. Messengers went through the land proclaiming the gospel of this new ruler, this new king. I am gospeling you. Maybe we don't say that very much, but that idea I think sticks with me. The angels are here gospeling the earth, spreading the good news that will be of great joy, that will be for all people. All tribes, languages, and tongues all over the earth will eventually hear this news of salvation. That today, heaven and earth has been joined together by the baby in a manger, the God-man, Jesus Christ. This is good news because there is bad news. The bad news is ultimately that sin is real, death is real, that we are sinners and we are unable to save ourselves. We sit in in our trespasses in sin. We are the people who sit in darkness who have now seen a great light. The shadow of death comes for us all. The wages of sin is truly death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the good news for the bad news. The gospel is good news because it is both enlightening and it is redemptive. It enlightens our sin that we need a savior. Yet positively it enlightens our understanding to see that there is a savior. One who has come to redeem your soul from the clutches of sin and Satan and death. Light does this. It shows us the wrong path, the one not to take, and it shows us that we didn't know where we were going and we were helplessly lost our way like a sheep who has gone astray. But we now, that light also points us, as the light of the gospel does, it leads us to the way everlasting, the one that we are following, our shepherd, Jesus Christ. 
That's the good news. And it's how we define good news. Maybe you think of good news, this idea, what is the best news that you've ever received? Have you received some good news recently? Hey, I've got good news for you, right? We might say. Or would you like the good news or the bad news? Or those obnoxious commercials that say, I've just saved a bunch of money on my car insurance by switching to Geico, right? Good news, not really. It's an annoying gimmick, right? It's not really all that good. But what if I have been saved by repenting from sin, putting my faith and trust in Jesus, receiving his grace and forgiveness for me, which now enables me to no longer fear death, but instead I can live victoriously following my Savior and my Lord. I've been made a new person. The old has passed away. The new has come. This really then becomes the best news ever. That it's not just this idea or this story or nostalgia or, 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 or this sense or this feeling or this force or this energy, but it's a person and that person can be known by you. And through his spirit, that spirit can live with us. And death doesn't have the final word. And we say this because in our faith that this good news the angels speak of is also good news for people like me. Because unto you is born this day in Bethlehem, in the city of David, as was foretold by the prophets, is a savior. And that savior is the Christ, the Messiah who was foretold. And he is Lord. I guess the question for us then, is he our Lord? It's easy to say there is a Lord, but is he our Lord? And so let's break down this good news in a little bit more detail as we kind of bring this to a close. These instructions that are given here are, are yes, well known to us in the sense that, well, where is that, that child going to be born? If I quizzed some of you kids earlier, if I said, where was Jesus born? Most of you would know right away, Bethlehem. We, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This translated the house of bread. David grew up there. The household of Jesse was from Bethlehem, the city of David. Yes, Jerusalem was also known as the city of David. But here in reference to the origins there, we find Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus declared a census. One was to be taken, they say in Roman history, about one every 14 years. And so Joseph was of the family of David. He had to report to Bethlehem called the city of David, right? And so he was to leave Nazareth, head to Bethlehem. And right here we begin in chapter two with a clear distinction that Joseph, Mary, the people of God, the Israelite nation is having to pay homage, is having to obey, is having to listen to some earthly king, the Caesar, the mighty Caesar, and then the Herod of we speak of in, in Matthew as well with the wise man that speaks to them because he thinks he's the king. What we, he, what we see is a clear contrast between the earthly kings and earthly rulers and the great and mighty king of kings. The Caesar is there telling everyone what to do. Yet the true king, or as John says, the true light which is come into the world has come to give light to everyone. Micah 5.2 is a fulfillment of all of this, that he would be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel. These are actually words that the wise men quote in Matthew. 
whose coming forth is from old the ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor shall give birth. This is Micah 5.2 in the Old Testament. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, speaking of the Messiah, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And I love the simplicity that Micah 5, 5 says. And he shall be their peace. This ruler would be born in Bethlehem. And he would bring peace. We need peace in this world. And in order for that to happen, we need a savior. We need a leader. We need one who will deliver us from this bondage. And lead us out of the darkness into the marvelous light. One who will vanquish our enemies and shepherd our, the people of God. It's my pack. All right, there we go. Okay, loose cord. All right, so you can blame it on me, not you guys. How about that? That sounds good. All right, can you hear me now? All right. Matthew 121. Angel to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. He is a savior, born in Bethlehem. And who is he? He is Christ the Lord, this Messiah, the designated one, the anointed one, the one that is promised from, from, uh, from old. The plan of redemption, the plan of, uh, of salvation of the world hinges off of the Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, the one of Jesus Christ. And then uh, the angels give them directions. Where are you going to find this, Jesus? Where are you going to find this Savior, this Lord, this Messiah? The one that we've been longing for, hoping for, has finally come. Well, what, where will we? What palace will we go to? What kingdom and court will we, will we visit? He's the baby. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, implying his infant state, that he's going to be lying in a feeding trough. <laughs> now that manger, that feeding trough, that manger is actually mentioned three separate times in a chapter. It's specific. It's important. It's, its designation is key. It is not a side note. It's a main thing. The location and the verification of this Jesus, this Messiah, would be born in a manger. What a contrast provider. What a, what a beautiful statement. The most glorious and brilliant and awe-inspiring birth announcement ever seen. These angels, these multitudes of the angelic heavenly messengers announcing his birth. And where will he be found? In a manger. In a feeding trough. The greatness of God Almighty so often displayed in his great love for mankind. This beauty, this great love shown in the fact that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He becomes and he lives like you and me. Takes on flesh, he becomes human. As Mary sings, he's mindful of people like you and me. He's aware and he knows and he understands. Hebrews 4 tells us, we don't have a high priest like this one, this mediator. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted like as we are. Yet without sin. That one who is able to sympathize and empathize and he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to go through what you are going through. He does not stand afar and aloof and away, but rather comes near and so near that he lives the life that you could never have lived. Yet without sin, as the word says. The glory of God. 
Are we in awe of this? Do we marvel at this? And then we come to this declaration of peace. <laughs> glory to God. This Gloria, as we sang, Gloria in excelsis Deo. This glory to God. Uh, some translations, the NIV says, glory to God in the highest of heaven. That's the implication. Glory to God in heaven. And peace, where? On earth, because of Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth bridged through Jesus. This R.C. Sproul says that this is not some kind of temporary like peace that a government brings in the sense like Pax Romana, the Roman Empire at that time, provided peace for a people group for a period of time. Nor is it a cessation of warfare between two rival groups. This peace is the transcendent peace which brings an end to the conflict between men and God. To those who hear the message of the coming Messiah, the war is over. Peace has become incarnated in the Prince of Peace who came to reconcile us with God because of his great love and grace for mankind. It's like the Berlin Wall. As it was destroyed and broken down, the peace between the two sides, there is now openness. Ephesians reminds us he tears down that dividing wall of hostility. And through his love and through his grace, openness, peace, and love are here. Peace on earth to those whom he has pleased. His favor and grace falls upon us today as we hear these words and as I hope your heart believes these words. That peace is for you. The heavenly messengers of the gospel give, this, give these earthly messengers of the gospel, these shepherds, so that these shepherds can go and spread this news of peace on earth to those who would come to Jesus, follow him, and believe in who he is. The heavenly messengers singing good news to these earthly recipients of grace. And then we see that Jesus bridges the gap. He bridges that gap between heaven and earth. He unites the two. Heaven and earth will be brought together because Jesus makes a way possible. I'm always reminded at this storyline, this story of the Bible, a simple story that some of you may be familiar with in the Old Testament, but I think it helps to just set into scene in a, in a smaller way the greatness of what Jesus has done by coming down. But perhaps some of you grew up in church, maybe you didn't, but you might be familiar with this story, this story in Genesis 28. It's the story of Jacob's ladder. You heard that? Sometimes people are familiar with that story, but yet it's, what does that mean? That Jacob has this dream, the son of Abraham, the one whose name would eventually be changed to Israel and become the father of the Israelite nation. It's this Jacob that is visited by these angelic messengers as heaven is opened up to him on this place of earth there at Bethel. And it's in that place that always fascinates me because it's the storyline of Jacob sleeping on earth and it is as if he has a vision of a ladder. One might even say, it's a more accurate depiction, is this staircase, this stairway, almost like a ziggurat tower leading up to heaven. And what is going on on that tower? There are angels ascending and descending and God himself, it says, comes and stands near on earth to Jacob and speaks to him the blessing of God to him and to his people and that from his nation and from this place will come blessing for the entire world, giving us prophecy that says that one day a Messiah will come from your lineage, to Jacob and to David and the final one to Jesus. But that heaven and earth would bridge 
one day, that there would be an openness and an ascension and a descension. There would be togetherness one day that Jesus would come down from heaven to rescue us and give us peace here on earth because Micah 5 tells us that he shall be their peace. As Jesus tells us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Romans 5 tells us, as Paul explains to us, that because of what Jesus has done, Romans 5 says that we have been justified by faith, that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And his grace is what we stand on, and it is because of that peace that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What a beautiful thing. To consider for a moment that we could have all of this strife and anger and war and hatred and vitriol and murder to be taken away. That the bickering and the fighting could be removed. The crying and the weeping and the wailing could be gone. Could one day be brought together in the perfect convergence and a wholeness and the shalom of heaven and earth together once again. Because in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong. It mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Make peace with God today by receiving the gift of peace on your life. We don't have to keep running. We don't have to keep fighting. We don't have to keep denying and lying to ourselves that we can save ourselves and we don't need no God to help us. Humbling ourselves rather under the mighty hand of God is the first step to receive his loving grace and forgiveness for our sin. Because he has already died for all of that sin. He's already forgiven you. And when you make him your king of your life, you receive his forgiveness and his grace and mercy come washing over you. And now by faith you believe in him and you do what he says. And he becomes not just a baby in a manger called Christ, but he becomes your Messiah, your Savior, and your King. And he becomes the one who leads you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. When you turn and repent from your sin, you turn to God and receive his grace and mercy. You find peace for your soul and life everlasting in hope through Jesus Christ. And do you know what happens when you do this? (laughs) When you repent and you turn one direction or another and you you follow Jesus and, and he gives you the blessing of life. Do you know what happens in heaven? this beautiful depiction that Jesus gives us that when we turn just like when Jesus is born there is this angelic chorus that sings praises and is just ecstatic with glory to God in the highest and peace on earth there's this singing there's this rejoicing that same thing happens for you every time someone is born again the Bible tells us Luke 15 verse 3 Jesus says this Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Don't you know this? 
And when he finds it, he, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And he goes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent or who think they do not need. And then it goes on. And suppose a woman has 10 silver coins, right? 10 silver coins. She just loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, go to it, search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, Jesus says, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One life, one soul causes heaven to sing in mighty chorus of joy because of your turning to him. That's how much God loves you. One soul, one life. Imagine a whole multitude of 500 people in this room rejoicing as heaven rejoices over so many who have turned. Imagine the millions on this day of Christmas Eve that will be singing glory to God in the highest for the joy and the grace that he sent. But there perhaps is one person in this room, one person who may come to a service tonight who doesn't know, who doesn't know that God loves you, that Jesus loves you, that he sent Jesus on Christmas for you. <laughs> and that God will seek you out. He will search for your soul. He will not end till he meets you face to face, till you have a relationship with him, till you know who Jesus is, that he's not some idea, some energy or force out there or just something we do around the holidays. But it's a life-changing message and he's a person. He came down in flesh and he's alive today and his spirit lives with you today. That message is for you and I know Jesus has come for you. Let us close in prayer. Father, we think of this message and this hope, the hope of Christmas that gives us a reminder of your great love and God, the peace that often for us, even today as we look back, passes all understanding. We can barely comprehend it. But God, thank you for coming. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our savior. I pray, Lord, that today, would be a day that reminds us all of your goodness and your grace, your love and your mercy. God, I pray that today on Christmas Eve, we would take moments to pause and to thank you for your goodness and your love for us. Thank you, God, for all of this time, this season, and for Jesus. The name in which we pray, in Jesus' name.